to Romans chapter number 3. Romans chapter number 3. Uh, my, my watch is telling me I need to breathe. Now i got to preach and breathe at the same time. That's a lot to do all at one time. Romans chapter number 3, and it's good to be in God's house. A couple of announcements. Tonight we have church at 6 p.m., and the kids have their kids club that they do. And then the rest of us will be in here at 6. Tonight we'll probably do favorites for singing. Brother Jay already, he picks out all the songs, so he already has a list of songs for tonight. But we'll do favorites, because now that we have the screens working the way they do, as long as we have the word for the screen, we'll do favorites tonight. So if you're here, you can pick a song that we'll sing. We're continuing on being spiritually fit in James chapter number 4. Today, we continue our series about who God is. We look at our just God. Justice is not an external system to which God tries to adhere but justice is that perfection of his nature whereby he infinitely is righteous in himself and in all that he does. Basically, it's summarized this way. God's justice comes out of his inner being, and it's based on the holiness and righteousness of God. Moses put it best in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse number 4. He is the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, okay? This is, this is the Lord we're talking about here. And so, he is the rock. His work is perfect. Look at this. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and righteous is he. So look at that verse. He's our rock. Everything he does is perfect. He never makes any mistakes. All his ways are judgment. He's a God of truth. There's no sin in anything that God does. And everything that God does, he is just and he's right in his doing of those things. Now, Think about Moses for a minute. He's at the end of his life. He's gone through a whirlwind of circumstances. As a baby, they tried to kill him. He ends up growing up in Pharaoh's house. One day he sees an Egyptian being bad to Israel, and he kills the Egyptian and wanders 40 years in the wilderness. And God's training him. God speaks to him on Mount Sinai and tells him, that he's going to use him to deliver the children of Israel. He goes. After a lot of struggle with Pharaoh, Pharaoh finally sees that God truly is God. And then for 40 more years, Moses gets to wander in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Doesn't get to go into the promised land. Do you realize this is written right before he dies? The Bible tells us that Moses, his eyes were not dim yet. He was not ready to die. He wanted to go into that promised land. But God told him, you smote the rock. You disobeyed me in your anger. And also, not only in his anger, but he compared himself to God. Do we have to get you watered? He put himself up on God level. And God's like, no, no, no. Because of your sin, you're not going in. We think that justice is getting away with things. And being told it's okay. That's how we view justice. Justice is a penalty 
for the crime committed. That's true justice. When we look at God, we don't like to talk about God's justice because we like to dwell on God's love. We like to dwell on his faithfulness. But you got to understand something. You cannot make God into what you want him to be. That's what we do. Um, Billy Graham said it, and I'm going to read you this quote. It's a great quote here. He said this, Modern man does not like to think of God in terms of wrath, anger, and judgment. He likes to make God according to his own ideas and give God characteristics he wants him to possess. That's what we do. We make God who we want him to be. And may I just remind you this morning, you cannot make God to be who you want him to be. The Bible talks about Jesus, that all that he did and all of who he is in the book of John says that the world couldn't even contain the books that should be written about him. He's given us all we need to know about him, but there is so much more that we don't even know. And yet we try to put make God the God we want him to be. That's not the God of heaven. He is God alone, and no one can make him into what they want him to be because he's God. And thank God we can't make him into what we want him to be. Thank God he has all of his attributes. He's just. He's holy. He's loving. He's a God of judgment. All of his attributes. A.W. Towser pointed out this, and he said, justice is indistinguishable from righteousness in the Old Testament. It means uprightness or rectitude. Justice is not something God has. Justice is something that God is. And then another man, Chip Ingram, added this to it. Justice is not a standard God follows. He is the standard. He is not accountable to justice because justice flows from him. It is part of who he is. Justice means that people are going to get what they deserve based on God's clear and full understanding of what they did and why they did it. We look around us today, and a lot of people want justice. In fact, doesn't our pledge say liberty and justice for all? There's one problem with mankind. Man is never truly just. You go to court for something. Is a judge always going to be just in his verdict? Not always. Why? He's human. We're all human. The only just one is God. Which means that judgment day is coming. Talk more about that here in just a minute. Let me show you a few verses in the Bible, what they say about God and judgment. Psalm 75, verse number 7. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up. There's a word missing. I should say another there. Say, why did that guy get the promotion at work? Don't worry about it. God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. In a few weeks, say, the guy I wanted as president isn't president. God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. God's the judge. Do we see that? The Bible tells us in, in uh, Psalm 97, verse number 2, clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. 
Proverbs 29, verse 26, many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse number 18, for the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. Zephaniah 3, 5, and yes, Zephaniah is in the Bible. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will, do, he will not do iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not, but the unjust knoweth no shame. Revelation 16, 7. And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. This morning I'm going to take a little bit of time and I'm going to answer the question that Abraham asked God in Genesis chapter number 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes. All the time, every time, no matter what, the judge of the earth does right. It's who he is. God will judge the world. God's justice means he must judge this world. This means that he's going to judge you and he's going to judge me, all of us. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. While most of us claim to want justice, I don't think we truly understand what justice means. A teacher years ago recounted an experiment he had on a freshman Old Testament survey class that he had. He had 250 students in the class. On the first day, he, spent, he went over the assignment very carefully, and he explained the requirements for the class, and there were three short papers due during the semester. He made it clear, and I, I teach at a Bible college, and, I've, and you make it clear, you give them dates when things are due because college students, young people, and uh, kids, they need dates, and even with those dates, you can make it as clear as day. You can write it on the chalkboard right in front of you. You can do all those things. And so he gave them dates. He said, so the first paper's due by noon on the last day of September, the second paper's due by noon on the last day of October, and he said the third paper's due by noon, the last day of November. He gave them the requirements, had all written out for them, everything else. On September 30th, 225 students turned in their papers. Another 25 stood there in terror, full of, remote, full of remorse. As they cried out for mercy, the teacher decided to give them a break. He said, remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. The students promised to have their next assignment in on time. On the last day of October, 200 students turned in their papers. Well, 50 came empty-handed. They were nervous, but not in a panic. They told the professor, we're sorry, please give us one more chance. We promise it will never happen again. The professor gave in, but said, this is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F. No excuses and no whining. Is that clear? They all nodded their heads in agreement, 
And so we get to the end of November. What do you think happened at the end of November? Only 150 students came with their papers. The other 100 strolled into class utterly unconcerned. The teacher shouted out, where are your term papers? One of the students replied, oh, don't worry, professor, we're working on them. We'll have them to you in a couple of days. The professor then picked up his black grade book and began shouting out names. Johnson, you have your paper? No, sir. F, the professor said as he wrote the grade in the book. The students reacted with, un they were upset. They howled in protest, screaming, that's not fair. The teacher then looked at one of the complaining students and asked, do you think this is unfair? The student courageously responded, yes, it's totally unfair. The teacher then said, I see. It's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late with your last paper as well. If you insist upon justice, you will certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll change your last grade to F because you deserve it. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. He apologized for being so hasty and suddenly was happy to settle for one F instead of two. Justice is getting what you deserve. And you see, as that teacher kept having mercy, the students took more on themselves, more leniency. God has been very gracious. And we're going to read that here in this passage in just a moment. But I want you to understand something this morning. In God's court, we have no case. We have no evidence to support us. We have evidence to incriminate us. We are all guilty before God. There are no plea bargains we can make. We're guilty. When we think about that, because God is a just God, He must judge everyone according to His standard. God's justice requires that there's a penalty for sin. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Judgment day is coming for everyone, like it or not. That day is coming. Why did God do what he's done? Why did God do what he did? Why did he work it this way? Why did God... Why is there punishment? Why couldn't God just say, hey, you know what? I forgive you. Forget about it. Forget about it. Your sin, just forget about it. It's no big deal. That's what people say. That's what a loving God would do. You're wrong. A God of justice demands punishment. A God of love provided a substitute so you wouldn't have to take your own punishment. You see how they work together. God's attributes all work together. They do, not go, they do not exist by themselves. They work together. God's love was greatly demonstrated through God's justice. 
think of God's justice, we think of God's wrath. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes as well. All of you loved the sermon last week about the faithfulness of God. We're talking about his justice today. It's not as exciting to a lot of us. But when you take the time and you think about what God did for you and for me, it should bring joy to your heart. The other day, I had, um, I had a meeting in my office with someone. We're going through a discipleship book. And I love seeing their face. We were just talking about Jesus and all that he's done. And their expression of, wow, Jesus did that for me. Newer Christian. I don't care if you've been a Christian 30 years, 40 years, five months, whatever the case is. You should never lose what he did for you. He took your place. God's wrath was poured on his son for you and me. We look at Romans chapter 3. And we'll dive right in, verse number 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. If you were to look at the entire book of Romans, this little passage, the end of chapter number 3, is the deepest part of the book. We look at this here, we see our problem. Verse 23, all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible doesn't exaggerate, and the Bible doesn't make things up. Baptist pastors can exaggerate. I get that. You can exaggerate too. God never exaggerates. So when he says all, he means what he says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. From Adam to the last baby born in the last few seconds, anywhere in the world, anyone, any human being in this earth, falls short of God's glory, except one. His name was Jesus Christ. He came, born of the virgin, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for our sins. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Our problem is the fact that we all fall short. Every one of us. We cannot obtain God's standards. Our story is we can never measure up to God. And think about this with me, church. That's why those who believe in a works-based salvation are so off in their theology. Because my works cannot be good enough to equate to God level. They don't measure up. My righteousness, what does the Bible say in the book of Isaiah? That my righteousness is as filthy rags. You know, that's why when God looks at me as a saved child of God, he doesn't see Brian's righteousness. He sees Christ's righteousness on me. That's the imputed righteousness we're given. That's God's standard. And the reason why I am justified in God's sight today is because of what Jesus did for me. And it's his righteousness on me, not my righteousness. And thank God for that. We look at these verses, and we see we all fall short. I read a story years ago about a burglar in Belgium who was surprised when he was robbing a house. He heard the homeowners had come home. He fled out the back door, climbed over this nine-foot wall, dropped down the other side, and found himself in the city prison. A 
not a place you want to go right at that time, but that's where he was headed. It's impossible to run from God because you'll eventually be imprisoned by your own sins. We look at these verses, and let me break them down and help you understand. Sometimes you see big words. You see the word propitiation mentioned there. That's an awesome word. It's such an awesome word. We'll talk about more here in just a second. Look at verse number 24. We look at verse 24 in the first half of verse 25, and we see what God did for us by providing a solution to us not measuring up. Look at verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation for, but to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The word propitiation means that it basically has the idea of satisfied, paid in full. You know, we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Yeah, that's literally what he did. You buy a house, you pay your mortgage payment for 30 years, 15 years if you could do it that way. And at the end, you get the title in your hands. The debt's been paid and it's yours. Sin had a high penalty. And Jesus Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross paid the payment in full. There's nothing else needed to appease the wrath of God. That's what we see right here. The next part of the verse, the end of verse 25 and verse 26, explains why God did what he did. Look at what it says there. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And then look at verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believe in Jesus. If you notice the end of verse 25 and going into verse 26, you see to declare mentioned twice. The word declare means to point out with a finger. It's like me pointing out like this. So it's as if God is pointing his finger to the cross and saying, this is proof of my justice and my mercy. In the past, and what I did with Jesus is proof of my justice and mercy for those going forward. That's what the cross tells us. It's God's declaration of his justice and mercy for his people. As we talk about that, there are two results that flow from him showing his righteousness. Number one, we see his mercy mitigates sin. His mercy mitigates sin. Before God's wrath was fully unleashed on the cross on Christ, in his forbearance, he held back his fury. So you think about this. Well, there are certain times in the Old Testament where we see God unleashed his anger, his wrath. Can anybody think of a time? The flood? But his mercy still prevailed because he saved Noah and continued on. Sodom and Gomorrah, God's wrath was on full display. But he did not judge. You got to think about this. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they deserved to die on the spot. 
that's what we all deserve. But what the Bible tells us here is the fact, what did God do for Adam and Eve in the garden? There was an animal that was sacrificed, and they were given coats of skin. Did you notice how as the Bible continued on in the Old Testament, there would be sacrifices made? We'd have the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the sacrifice would be made for the sins of Israel for that year. Then the next year, it would happen again. What was God allowing to happen? Sin was just being pushed down the line. Being pushed down the line. So you go back to the days of you go back to the days of Israel in the wilderness, pushing it along, pushing it along. Israel getting into the promised land, sin just keeps getting pushed along, keeps getting pushed along. This is the forbearance, the mercy of God. God could have judged them all on the spot, and he would have had the right to. They get a king and they keep on going. They just keep passing that sin along. They have a tome, they just keep the sacrifices made, just passed along. Then, then it gets to Jesus. Why was it that once Jesus died on the cross, there was no need for another sacrifice? Because he paid the whole price. All of God's wrath was poured on Jesus Christ. So when we look and we think about his mercy and we talk about this here, and as we look at this here, God postponed his judgment. God had every right at Adam and Eve to judge right then. But in his love and his mercy, he let that be passed along until his son came for those who had sinned in the past. We see at the end of verse 25, we see through the forbearance of God. But God couldn't keep postponing divine punishment because if God never punished, it would show that God's attributes of holiness and justice and his righteousness were cheap and worthless if he didn't judge. The Bible tells us, look at what it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, that man Jesus Christ, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he, Jesus, hath raised, or that he, God, hath raised him, Jesus, from the dead." You see that verse there? Now's the time because there is a day coming and that judgment day is coming. And we can even look at 1 Peter, the end of chapter number 5, where it talks about how God's not slack concerning his promise. And people look today, well, where's the Lord? He says he's going to come back. And there's people who scoff at it. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise. He is coming. But it says he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Say, why hasn't he come back yet? There's one more that he's waiting for to get saved. That's why. And if you were that last one, wouldn't you be grateful he hasn't come yet? But I'm ready for him to come, so whoever you are that needs to get saved, just do it so we can all go and be with him. His mercy mitigates sin. But then, number two, his justice justifies sinners. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Now, we saw in verse 25 there 
the fact that he, the cross declares his righteousness for those in the past. And in the forbearance of God, Jesus took care of all of the Old Testament saints, their salvation. We also see the fact that the cross declares that we today, 2,000 years ago when it was written, or even today, can be justified because of what he did on the cross for us. Think about this, think about this way from verse 26, that God who is just is also the one who justifies jerks like you and me. You look at that, his righteousness how, how does that work? How could God's righteousness be proven by declaring us righteous? It all comes down to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That substitutionary, sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. Think about this. God did not abandon his justice because his righteous wrath was poured on Christ. And God accepted the sacrifice of his son as payment for sins. As a result of that, he can forgive the fallen sinner and yet maintain his righteousness. That's what the gospel is all about. What God's justice demanded, Jesus provided for you and me. With his justice satisfied and his love unleashed, sinners are declared righteous when they put their faith in Jesus. You think about that verse, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might be called the righteousness of God in him. So wonderful. You see, this is what it comes down to, church. We're all going to be judged. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, your penalty's been paid. Jesus died for you. He suffered the wrath of God, God's punishment, so that you could have eternal life and have his righteousness on you. You reject Jesus and you pay for your own sin. That's where judgment, hell, come into play. You realize there are going to be two judgments that come. You have the judgment seat of Christ. You have the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians. It happens sometime after the rapture where we'll give an account to God for the things that we have done in this life, that's the one you want to be a part of, the judgment seat of Christ. Far too many Christians think, though, it's going to be a picnic and just, oh, just wonderful. Our works get tried by fire. We'll talk more about that at the end of the message this morning. What you do for Christ in this life matters today. But the great white throne judgment, those who reject Christ, that's where death and hell are brought up to be judged by the judge, Christ himself. And the Bible makes it clear he has the power to forgive sins on earth. Once you're out of this earth, once you, there, is no, there is no other chances. It's done. You will be judged by God, the great white throne judgment, and cast into the lake of fire forever. So why would God do that? If God was just, why would he do that? God's just in that he gave us his son so you don't have to. All you got to do is trust his son. That's all you have to do. Trust Jesus. That's all it is. He didn't give you 10 hoops to jump through. 
give you a long list of things. You put your faith and trust in Jesus. That's all you do. He didn't make it hard. Men like to complicate it, but God didn't make it hard. Very simple. Very easy. Easy for us. Very hard on Christ. To have the wrath of God poured on him for us. This pastor's statements help me when it comes to God. God saw his glory being despised by sinners. He saw his worth belittled and his name dishonored by our sins. And rather than vindicating the worth of his glory by slaying his people, he vindicated his glory by slaying his son. Because God is just, he must judge everyone who doesn't meet his standard for perfection. That means you and me, because sin has to be paid for. Now think with me. Do you realize that Jesus is the only one who could have paid our sin debt? God could not die for man because God doesn't sin. Man couldn't die for mankind because man is a sinner. The only possible way to have a payment paid in full and have the propitiation for our sins was for God himself to come out of heaven, put on flesh, God and man together, and Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, and die on the cross. He is the only one that was possible to die on the cross, take away the sins of the entire world. No one else could do it. No one else ever could. Because think about this. If we could do it for ourselves, then we'd die and go to hell for a little bit, and then we'd go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. It's an eternal lake of fire. Once you're in hell, you're always in hell because we do not measure up to God. So if God's so just, why would he send anyone? If God's so just, why would anyone innocent go to hell? Because no one's innocent. There's not one innocent person that's ever gone to hell. Everyone who goes, you offend one part of the law, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Everyone. The smallest sin to the biggest sin, it's all sin. God is just in how he does things. You got to understand this morning, church, there's no tension between God's love and God's justice because Jesus is the fusion of divine love and God's divine justice together. A lot of people, and this is where Christians get it way off base today. In a few weeks, we're going to talk about the love of God, but I've saved that towards the end of the series. Say, why? That's just how I did it. I don't know. It's the way the Lord led me to do it. If you would do it a different way, you do it a different way. But far too many Christians dwell on the love of God and forget about every other attribute of God. The love of God is very important. Thank God for his love because there's been no love like his. But what I want you to understand is this, and as we think about this this morning, the fact that Jesus was offered as our sin substitute shows a greater love on God's part than just releasing us from our sins. People who say God's all love, then God would just forgive us and forget about it. That's not how God works. Maybe in your mind that's how God works. If God really loved people, he'd just say, I forgive you and forget about it. No. Jesus went through hell so you wouldn't have to. That's what he did. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. To fulfill his justice, God's love was so great that he gave his son for us. And love and justice are two inseparable attributes of God. 
You think about this, the cross was at once the most horrible and the most beautiful example of God's wrath. It was the most just and the most gracious act in human history at one time. Jesus took our sin. He became sin. He had the wrath of God poured on him so that we could be made free. You know, and you look at verse 25 and 26, how do we, how do we get this? It says, Whom God hath set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How do you, how do you get this? How do you get this justification? How do you get the propitiation for your sins? How do you get this righteousness? Do you see it right there? You believe in Jesus. That's what it says. Salvation is not complicated. It's not hard. Lord, I believe in you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again. I believe you. That's what salvation is. That's what it takes to be called righteous. You think about it. A lot of people in this life think they deserve a lot of things. What's amazing what we think? I deserve better than what I get. I hear people say that. I deserve, I deserve this. Let me just make a clear statement for all of us this morning. I'm included in this statement, okay? There's one thing we all deserve. It's called hell. That's what we deserve. Thank God for his mercy that we don't have to go there. And thank God for his grace for all the added benefits he's given to us besides not having us go there. But you got to understand something. God's wrath is coming. It is coming. We don't like to talk about it, but it's true. Um, a Bible dictionary defines divine wrath like this, the personal manifestation of God's holy moral character in judgment against sin. Judgment is coming. Let me remind you of a few verses, church. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 3 tells us, declares that we're all by nature the children of wrath. You know, and this is, let's just, let's clear the air again. I hear a lot of politicians that claim to be Christians. I hear a lot of Christians say this, that we're all children of God. That's not a biblical phrase. We are, by nature, children of wrath. Say, so how do you become a child of God? By trusting in him. We receive the adoption of sons, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. He adopts us into his family. You see, before sin, that's how it worked, but sin changed everything. So the Bible declares that by nature we're the children of wrath. The Bible tells us in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The Bible also tells us in Romans 2, verse number 5, but after thy hardness and infinite heart treasurest up against thyself wrath, against the day of wrath, the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The day of God's wrath is coming. It's known as the day of the Lord. The battle of Armageddon takes place. The book of Revelation chapter 14 gives us some insight to what it's going to be like on that day. Just look at these verses, and I'll explain them to you here in a minute. 
And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and the blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridle by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. I've explained all this to you before when I've done a study on the book of Revelation, but I'm going to explain it a little bit right now. The battle of Armageddon is going to take place, and we know that's when Jesus comes again, and he comes to conquer. When that happens, we see in this verse that God's wrath is going to be poured out. It says that the blood came out of the wine press, even up under the space of the horse's bridle. Okay, a horse, I'm, I'm not much of a horse person. I told a story a couple weeks ago about a horse, and uh, horses and me don't mix very well. A horse's bridle, how high would you say? Here? Uh, we'll say around here, anywhere in there. And it says, by the space of 1,600 furlongs, you don't know furlongs very well anymore. That's an old measurement type, about 180 miles. So think with me for a minute. From Chino to the border of Arizona on the 10, it's close to 180 miles. It's close. It might be a few miles off, but it's pretty close. This high. Well, even that wide. All the blood of all the people that will die on that day in God's wrath. That's what it says. 180 miles. And uh, I wish I had the numbers with me. But when, when the Bible, and you say, is it even possible to have that much blood added up? It is. When you look at the armies that are going to come from China in that area towards Jerusalem, and you look at Russia and the areas up there and the armies that are going to come down, that's why Syria and all those areas are very important because at some point they'll all try to encamp this, the city of Jerusalem. And I know this is all Revelation stuff, and we could go real deep into all of it, but we won't do that today. I'm not going much further. But it's very possible that you have, and I, I'll get the number right later if I'm wrong, I think 6 million people, could add, their blood could add up to that number. I think it's 6 million. I could be wrong on that number, and if I'm wrong on that number, I'll tell you next week what the real number was, because I wrote it down. When you add it all up, when you take the blood that's in a human body, there's going to be a ton of people that die. You know how there's the supper of the great God, too, and the birds all eat the carcasses of all those that have died? That's all that takes place then. We don't like to talk about that. But that's coming. That's our just God. Because sin must be paid for. But you got to think about the fact that God already sent his son to die. No one has to go through that. They don't have to. They choose to. God gave his son so that you don't have to go through that. God gave his son so you don't have to go to hell. He's not willing that any should perish. That's our God. That's the love our God has. But people choose not to follow him. They choose not to call on his name or believe in him. And that's the punishment that comes. Because God's judgment is going to come. We think about the song we sing in church on the Battle Hymn of the Republic. It talks about that verse, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his parables with sword. His truth is marching on. 
It's talking about that day, the Battle of Armageddon. Two thoughts as we close this morning. Where are we at on time? Oh, we're doing pretty good. We'll be done here in just a minute, a few minutes. A few minutes. I don't want to get your hopes too high, you know. I told you, Baptist pastors can embellish a little bit. So um, I want to talk to two different groups of people for a moment. Maybe you're watching online today, and you don't know Christ as your Savior. Maybe you're sitting in this room, and you're not sure you're saved. I read an article in the Washington Post last night, and they said the biggest thing that people hate with COVID is thing about death. That was the whole opinion piece. People don't people know that death is around, but they don't like think about it for themselves. Now let me just give you a thought real quick. Up to almost up to seven younger than younger than we'll just go sixty five and younger you have a 0.9996% chance of living through COVID. Over, nine, over 70 and above, you have a 94.6% chance of living through COVID. You have a 0% chance of escaping death. You have a 0% chance of escaping judgment. It's coming. I don't say that this morning to scare anyone because you got to understand something. I've been in services where I've seen the pastor scare people to get saved. I mean, I remember one time, I, it, was, it was awful. This man was teaching kids, and he had a blowtorch and lit it, and I almost got saved. You don't scare people into getting saved. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard or seen. But I just want to remind you of something. Hell is real. Judgment is coming. God's mercy will has, has an ending date. You need to know that you're ready to meet God. And you know why people get scared of a virus that's real and that has killed some people, you know, but with slim chances of dying overall. You know why it scares people? Because it makes them think of dying. A Christian shouldn't fear dying. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, I'd much prefer to go in my sleep than in a car accident or any other way. But you got to understand something. This world, they, they don't get it. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure. Do you realize you could have God's righteousness on you because Jesus already did all the work? He did it all. All you got to do is believe in him. That's it. This is what the Bible says in John chapter number 3, verse 36. The Bible tells us, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. That's straight from the word. If you don't know Christ, the wrath of God is on you. But when you know the Son, you have everlasting life. See that there? You think about why did Jesus come? John 3, verse 16, we know that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us the next two verses, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he believeth not in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. 
John 5, 24, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Salvation is knowing you're a sinner, knowing there's a penalty for sin, knowing that Jesus Christ paid that penalty, and you accept his gift of salvation, you put your faith in him. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you don't know Christ, to ask him to be your Savior. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But that was the first type of person I want to talk to this morning. As we're on the finish line, I want to talk to Christians for a minute. In light of who God is and in light of God's justice, I want to give you a couple thoughts to close with. First one is this. Refuse to seek vengeance. Refuse to seek vengeance. Instead of judging and criticizing and trying to get even the score with everyone else who's ever done you wrong, let God be the judge. I don't understand why so-and-so gets away with that. Let God be the judge. Why did they get the raise at work? Why did they get the promotion? I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to do what's right. And look, and their life's better than mine, and they're living wicked. It's not your place to judge anyone else. Let God be the judge. What does the Bible tell us? Romans 12, verse number 19 through 21. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I know some of you say, well, pastor, I'm the Lord's messenger, just helping the Lord do his work. He doesn't need your help. He does not need you, and he does not need me. And any time in the Bible people did the Lord's work and tried to help him out, it never ended very well. Let God take care of things for himself. The next verse says, therefore, if thy enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink, for in, doing, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And I hear Christians often say, man, I'm going to follow that verse. If my enemy, that person I like, if they're, I'm going to be nice to them. And maybe it's going to heap coals of fire on their head. You missed the whole point of the verse, okay? You totally missed it. If you're only doing it to spite them, you missed the whole thing. Let God take care of it. But I love the end there. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And Christian, may I just remind you too, in the world that we live today, there's a lot of evil around us. The way to overcome the evil is not to stoop down to that level and do evil things. The way to overcome evil in this world is to do good. Don't ever lose sight of that. So point number one in some application, refuse to seek vengeance. Number two, stand against injustice. Stand against injustice. Because God is a just God, he calls his people to stand up for those who are mistreated. Micah 6, 8, he has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. We need to stand up against injustice. Now, I mentioned it before, and I'll mention it again. How, how does God want you to respond to the injustice of the, of the unborn? There's a lot of injustice there. What right does mankind have to take another man's life? God's the author of life, not us. How does God want you to treat people with different skin color than you have? Now listen for a second. We hear cries today of social injustice and racial injustice most of the people who are crying those things don't even know what they're talking about. They wouldn't have a clue what social and racial injustice is. 
when it's the basketball players who make millions of dollars are talking about social injustice, they need to shut up. But I want to remind you of something else as well. In this world, there are a lot of social and racial injustice. And it's wrong. It's wicked and against everything that God stands for. And if you, and you got to understand something. We look and we hear today, and we hear groups, and I try not to get too off on these things. We hear these groups, Black Lives Matters and all these different things. A lot of that's a political game. But I do want to remind you of something. I'm a white guy. I have not gone through what other people have gone through in other places. And there is, we live in a great country, a great country, but it's still not perfect. You got to remember that. You know, I don't believe that our country was founded on slavery in, in 1669 like that New York piece, New York Times piece. I believe that our founders wanted liberty and justice for all. I'm thankful for President Lincoln and what he did in his day to stand against slavery. It shouldn't have happened ever, but it did, and we dealt with it then. There's still been prejudiced people, and there still are in many places. And when you treat someone differently based on the color of their skin or the way that that's wrong, you treat someone different because of whatever religion they may be. Maybe they wear a towel on their head. Maybe they don't. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's injustice. And we need to stand up for what's right. But we get, we look at all these groups today. You want to know the most, the biggest group that we need to deal with. If we want to talk about injustice for our black community, we need to get rid of Planned Parenthood. They have ruined more black communities than any other organization anywhere. And they've taken advantage of our black communities way more than anything else. But heaven forbid we do anything about that. Because people like to pick and choose what they like. And just stand up for what's right. Stand up for life. Stand up against injustice. And may I just remind you, a lot of what is said today is a bunch of baloney out there. And it's all used as political propaganda to burn down buildings, to loot buildings, and to cause chaos. I, hear it, I heard just the other day, and I, I need to get off of this, but I heard someone say, if you vote for Trump, you're a racist. I left a comment for that person. I know that person. I said, that's the most racist statement I've heard. Because what you're doing is you're being more racist by calling, how dare you? I don't agree with everything that our president does, and I don't agree with everything I do every day. I'm thankful he stands for the unborn. He does. I'm thankful he stands for religious liberty. He does. Have you looked at the state of California lately? You know, it's the only state in the, in the state in the United States where you're not supposed to sing in church. Did you know that's the only state? It's the only one? And that's, that's our governor. Our governor is the one who signs all these crazy bills into law. Just think. Stand against injustice. Why? Because that's what God wants you to do. 
and it's so, it's so neat. If you read through the Old Testament, and I know we're, I said I'd be done in a second. I am just about done. You read in the Old Testament, you read Leviticus. You guys are like, yeah, yeah. You read Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It is so neat to see how God worked it out for the, for the poor people to be taken care of. And I shouldn't get into all of it, but God didn't design government to take care of the poor. The people in the community are supposed to help take care of them. And, you know, one of the things, they would leave their extra seed on the ground that they could come pick up and get. God designed all of that. God is for social justice. He is. I'll leave it there. Thirdly, so we refuse to seek vengeance, stand against injustice. Number three, man, between talking about politics earlier and talking about all this, I lost some of you a long time ago. Number three, step up your giving and serving to the Lord. We've not only been saved from our sins, but we've been saved to serve. When's the last time you took an inventory of your talents and what God's given you, your time, your talents, and your treasures? The Bible tells us 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 through 15. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's works of what sort it is. If any man's works abide, which he hath builded thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burnt, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We went up yesterday, our family, to Oakland. We go up there every year. I've been going up since I was a kid. And they've had those fires up there. And I didn't know what to expect as we went up there. But I got those firefighters, they do such a great job. I'm, we, we, it's just amazing what they do. You look, the hills were burned and gone. But they literally stopped the flames from the whole village area. So when you're there on a, one of the farms, you feel like everything's normal. You just don't look up to the big hill and see. If you, if you look to the south, everything looks normal. And you look at some of the houses, the fire, fire, the fire got right up to the porches. And they stopped. The, all the houses were still standing. It's amazing what our firefighters do. They're a big-time blessing. But it made me think yesterday as I was preparing for this message. Someday when I stand before God, all my works are going to be put out. And there's going to be a fire. I would hope... And my prayer is that there's going to be stuff that remains after the fire. Hope like you look at Oak Glen and you saw the village was mostly intact. I hope that when, my, when the fire is lit, that the reason I served God was not for myself, but for him. My love for him. That I gave him the best of my time and my treasures. Because everything else is going to burn up. We're all going to stand before him. And it's so important that we live for him today. Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. That day is coming for us, the day that we stand before him. And we're going to give an account, each of us. And then lastly, number four, go with the gospel. Tell this world about the gospel. Once you know for sure that your faith is settled, help someone else. Because the Bible tells us, how can they hear without a messenger, without a preacher? Let's do our best. Let's live for God today. Thank God for his justice. Father, we